Well, tonight I have some good news for you and I have some bad news for you. The good news is that Jesus is returning. The bad news is that it's already happened and you all missed it. Apparently, I mean, that's true if you believe Harold Camping. How many of you recognize the name Harold Camping? He was a radio broadcaster, became famous, uh, or shall we say notorious, in 1988 when he predicted uh, that the end of the world was coming, the return of Christ, the judgment, the rapture, all of that was happening on the 21st of May, 1988, and he wrote his book, 88 Reasons That This Would Happen, and of course, it was a bestseller until the 22nd of May, 1988, um, and he kind of doubled down with refiguring his math, thinking it would be 89. And this went on a few times. Um, then in uh, 2011, he said he was 100% sure he had the date set. It was, of course, 21st of May, 2011. Um, that Jesus Christ was coming back, that Christians would be caught up in the air, that judgment would come. News crews, of course, came camping outside the camping residence. Um, on the 21st of May, on the off chance that it was not the end of the world, they wanted to get an interview from him what he said. He stayed in his home the rest of the day. He stayed in his home May 22nd, trying to figure out what possibly could have gone wrong. And in May 23rd, he appeared, and he gave an interview, and he told reporters that he was so sure that his predictions uh, must have been correct that the only possible explanation is that the end of the world, the return of Christ, the judgment of the world did happen on the 21st of May, 2011, but that it must have been a spiritual coming of the Lord. It must have been a spiritual judgment, but his calculations were right. And so he then predicted that the actual physical event of Christ's coming would be the 21st of October of the same year which has come and gone. <laughs> uh, this goes on and on and on. There are still people today uh, who are setting dates. In fact, I was just glancing on the internet. Apparently, the next one that people are raving up for is the 21st of May, 2014. So, you know, you've got less than a year to prepare. But just before you go out and quit your job, tell your boss what you think of him, elope with your girlfriend, or cash in on all of your uh, long-term investments, Maybe you should pause for a moment and turn to Luke chapter 9. We'll have a look at what the Bible really says about the second coming of Christ. Luke chapter 9. Now, there's more good and bad news. We're going to make some progress in the gospel of Luke tonight. That's the good news. The bad news is we're only doing one verse. And I know this is the longest gospel, so if we went one verse at a time, we'd be here forever, until the end of the world probably. But um, it's important that we just kind of slow down and we look at this topic of the second coming of Christ and the timing of the second coming of Christ. And this is a verse that is key in that discussion. So that's why I wanted us to look at that. Um, to remind you of the context, Christ has called his followers to a daily death sentence of continually taking up their cross and being willing to die for him, to obey him. Um, in verse 26, Luke nine twenty-six, he says, uh, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So that's the verse we're going to camp on tonight. Verse 27. Um, there were some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. 
And uh, what we're going to learn tonight by looking at various passages is that there are three characteristics of the second coming so that you will know how to answer wackos. Um, that is the official... I don't know. Is that what we had up there? No. Okay, good. Um, but, but that's why we're doing it. Because there are wacko people out there who constantly think that the end of the world is nigh for various reasons, and they're always trying to predict exact times, and you need to know how to answer them, and also to be assured yourself, especially if your kid comes in one day and like, Mom, so-and-so said it's the end of the world. Then don't call him a wacko, but at least remember these three characteristics of the second coming of Christ. Um, the first is that the second coming of Christ will be unfulfilled, well, is unfulfilled. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. And I'm going to prove that to you. Um, secondly, it is unpredictable. You cannot set a direct date for it. And thirdly, it's unmistakable. When it does happen, you'll, you'll definitely, definitely know. So let's look at this first one. Um, it is unfulfilled. And this is actually the question of this verse, because verse 27 says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So what does this mean? This is Jesus talking to a group of people. He's just mentioned the context that there will come a time of judgment and he, they must not deny him because in that time of judgment he will deny them. Um, and so he's speaking about this, about when the, the verse 26 talks about when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So he's speaking about a time in the future. We just call it the second coming as opposed to the first coming of Christ which was, you know, Bethlehem, he was born a baby, and he came in humility, and, and um, he died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, and when he left, in Acts chapter 1, he said, I will come back. And so that's what we're waiting for, the second coming, not the first coming, but the second coming. And so we kind of use that term to refer to all of the events that go with that. You know, you've heard of the rapture, and you've heard of the resurrection of the dead, and the judgment, and all these different things. It's sometimes called the coming of the kingdom of God. You know, when you talk about kingdom come, and when we pray, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's kind of what you're praying for, for Jesus Christ to come, establish his kingdom. We believe that he will reign on earth for a thousand years, and this is all predicted in various scriptures. So what does he mean when he says in verse 27, there are some standing here, some people listening to me talk about this, who will not taste death or will not die until they see the kingdom of God. So some people say that the kingdom of God and therefore Jesus' second coming must have happened in the lifetime of those apostles. I mean, that's what he says. There's some people standing here. So either those people didn't die or they died and the kingdom came. Now, what's the problem with that view? Well, we know that Jesus didn't come back in their lifetime. Um, If this is the kingdom of God and God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, then why do you have a bunch of keys? Why do you need keys for your car? (laughs) Um, No one's going to steal your car if God's will is being done here on earth as it is in heaven. Why do we have any problems? Why do we vote? Why do we have politicians? If Jesus is here ruling, he's just going to appoint the rulers. Um, Why do we have... Uh, prisons. There won't be prisons in the kingdom of God because Psalm 2 tells us he's going to rule the, the nations with a rod of iron and he will crush those that uh, rebel against him. So we're not in the kingdom of God, right? It, it didn't happen. So what does this mean then? Okay, so you, I'm going to, if you were here for Will Brannan's series on the Mount of Olives, the, the, what the, the Olivet Discourse, 
then some of these terms will be just a recap for you and a reminder to drive it home. If you weren't there for this, some of this might sound quite new to you. We will have a Q&A after this for you to clarify some of these questions. But I'm going to introduce you to some terms. And the first term is that of a preterist. A preterist is a, a Christian who interprets um, the prophecies that we read in the Bible as having happened before the date 70 A.D., 70 AD. That's why they're called preterists. They believe that everything iterates before that date. The other view is futurist, which believes that things will happen in the future still, from, from wherever you are. Um, and so future of 70 AD, future of 2023. 20, okay, so let's talk about the preterists. There are two main types of preterists that are alive and kicking today. There's full preterists and moderate preterists, or partial preterists, they're sometimes called. Full preterists are wackos, okay? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's not the technical term. That's just an easy way to remember full preterists are fully wacko. Um, uh, they include uh, people like Ed Stevens and Max King, of the Parkman Road Church of Christ, Ohio, who believe that every single prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament have already been fulfilled. That's what they believe. Every prophecy, including the prophecies about the second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ has already come. It must have been fulfilled because all of the prophecies in Scripture are fulfilled. That's what they believe. And why do they believe that? Because of this verse. Because there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Ed Stevens writes, the second coming must have already occurred since it was one of the things predicted in the Old Testament which had to be fulfilled by the time Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. I didn't mention that. That date, 70 AD, that's why it's significant. Because that's the date that the temple was destroyed by Titus Vespasian. And after that temple was destroyed, Judaism ceased to function. Because you need a temple for Judaism to work. There's no tabernacle, there's no temple, there's no sacrifices. And that's why, to this day, you can go to Israel and you can see the Jews go all the way up to the, what's called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. It's the wall that gets them as close as they can to get to where the temple should be and the, the Holy of Holies, but it's now occupied by a mosque, you know, the Dome of the Rock, so the Jews can't go there. So they go to the wall and they wail because they can't do their Judaism. They can't make sacrifices on the temple. And so they're waiting for God to restore that so that they can get back to doing that. So that happened in 70 AD. And so preterists say that all of the prophecies that talk about the end of the world and that were actually talking about that terrible destruction that happened where thousands of Jews were killed and Jerusalem was burnt and the temple was destroyed and the gold was taken and Judaism was put to an end once and for all. And so anything that talks about the end of the world is talking about that event. So... What did they do, what did full preterists do with the fact that Jesus isn't in Jerusalem like the prophecies say he will be? He's not ruling. He's not settling the Palestinian land debate. He's, he, he, things are not being done on earth as they are in heaven. What do they do with that? Well, they have to spiritualize it. They have to say, yes, Jesus is. He did come back spiritually. He is in Jerusalem spiritually. He is reigning on the throne of David spiritually. You know, the, the, the will of God is being done on earth as it is in heaven, spiritually. And whenever they, they, you know, throw their little spiritually dust, what they mean is, not really. I mean, so the prophecies have been fulfilled. Not really. I mean, they've, they've been fulfilled spiritually. They weren't intended to be fulfilled literally. 
That's why I just call them wackos, because that can't possibly be true. So many of the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled literally. I mean, the prophecy that the world was going to be um, flooded for Noah. Was that like a spiritual flooding? No, it caused the Grand Canyon and the death of everything that wasn't on the ark. No, that was literal, you know. Uh, the, the, the prophecy that Israel was going to be taken into captivity for 70 years by Jeremiah. Was that like a spiritual 70 years? No, it was 70 years on the dot because that, we read Daniel's reading Jeremiah and says, well, I've been here 70 years. This must be the year that we go back. And it was. So literal fulfillment must be a part of prophecy. Okay. So you're not a partial preterist. I mean, you're not a full preterist. What about a partial preterist or moderate preterist? Now, these are not wackos. This is a, a more respectable position. In fact, one of the theologians I respect most of all, R.C. Sproul, he's a partial preterist. And what they believe is that most of the prophecies, but not all, have been fulfilled by 70 A.D. So they will usually read, read most of the judgment-type texts to also spiritualize them and talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. But they, partial preterists don't believe that Jesus Christ has come. So that means that they're okay. They're not wackos. In fact, R.C. Sproul himself calls full preterists, he doesn't call them wackos, but he does call them heretics. In other words, if you believe what a full preterist believes, you, you're not an orthodox Christian to believe that Jesus isn't actually going to return to earth because that's already happened. So we're, we're far more happy with partial preterists. Um, some of the prophecies were fulfilled in 70 AD, but some are still coming. Now, if you're not a preterist, though, the other option is futurist. Futurist is what I am. It's what I teach. Um, and what I believe is that the prophecies in the Old Testament that were meant to be fulfilled literally and were fulfilled literally, those are done, of course. But the prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled literally, we're waiting for them to be fulfilled in the future. That's why we're called futurists. So every prophecy in Scripture must be fulfilled literally, and the ones that haven't been fulfilled literally yet will be fulfilled in the future, in what we call the end times, right? And so we believe it will be done physically, literally, in an unmistakable way. Um, what this looks like is I interpret the Bible the same way I interpret the news. Except that the news I don't trust. But <laughs> I interpret, if, if I watch the weatherman and the, the weather channel says there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow, then I think that there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow. What I do not think is that there is a 70% chance of there being peace in my household. Because that's not what he said. He said rain. He didn't say peace. I don't think that that means there's a 70% ch chance of um, conversion among the Muslims. You know, no, he said rain, so it must be rain. That's how I interpret the Bible. When the Bible says it's going to rain, I think, oh, okay, it's going to rain. And so if it says it's going to rain blood, then I think, ooh, gross, I better get the cat inside. Because it does say it's going to rain blood in the end times. But I think it's going to be literal. When it says that there's going to be giant hailstones of 100 pounds that are going to pummel the, the earth, then I think I'm glad that I, my office is on the basement. You know, <laughs> like I think that that's literally going to happen. Now, preterists might look at me and say, tee-hee, that's so funny. He thinks these things are literal. But I'm like, why not? Everything else that the Bible said happened, happened literally. So what about this verse 27? 
I tell you that there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What is the most important rule in interpreting a verse in the Bible that you're not sure what it means? Context. What is the second most important rule? And the third most important rule? Okay, good. So as long as you've got the first three rules down, you're going to be streets ahead of the way most people interpret Scripture. So, Jesus was just talking about how life on this earth, we need to take up our cross, we need to um, stand for Christ even in persecution. We must not be ashamed of him because when he comes in his glory, uh, he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. Okay, so he's talking about his coming glory with the holy angels. Fair enough. Then there's this verse on the bridge. You know, that's the water on the one side. Now there's the verse on the bridge. We're not sure what it means. But what's the verse right after it? What's the next thing? So if you look at verse 28... Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mount to pray. When he was praying, his appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were with him, talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. As they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Wow. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, next week we're going to jump in depth into that actual account and and what happened there. But it's important that you realize that after verse. 27, there's some people standing here that aren't going to die before they see me in my, until they see the kingdom coming. The very next thing is that they have this experience. Well, that they see the kingdom of God. Now, just a, a little note. You can go to Mark chapter 9 as well. Uh, and you can go to Matthew. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, it'll come to me in a moment. Um, And in both of those passages, the order is the same. So in Mark chapter 9, the same thing happens. Uh, Let me just go there because it's actually worth seeing. It's a little bit different there. The wording. And Matthew 16, thanks. But we'll just look at the Mark one for now. Um, Mark 9. So Mark 9 verse 1 says, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. And the next verse says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, etc., etc. And it's the same thing. The, The Matthew 16 passage also says six days. So just a quick little note there. Our passage in Luke says eight days. Mark and Matthew say six days. If that doesn't bug you, that's good. That's fine. Just move on. If that does bug you, there's a couple of ways you can harmonize that. One of them is that we know that Jesus taught the same thing multiple times. 
And so it's very common, like if a preacher goes to a town that he's going to preach the same sermon in three different locations because there's three different crowds or whatever. So it's very, very possible that Jesus preached the stuff about taking up your cross and all of that, you know, eight days before the transfiguration, maybe again seven days before the transfiguration, maybe again six days before the transfiguration, maybe again five days, as many times. And, you know, Matthew and Mark are talking about six days after this sermon, this happened. And uh, Luke's talking about, you know, eight days after this sermon, that happened, but it, it's the same stuff. So and that's just an easy way to, to harmonize those two. But the point is that the way it's recorded by all the synoptic gospel writers is that whenever they talk about this, some here standing here will not die until they see this kingdom coming in power and glory they all immediately say the next thing that happened, the next thing that we're going to record that happened is this Mount of Transfiguration where they saw Jesus in his glory and it was a glimpse of the kingdom. How was it a glimpse of the kingdom? Well, you've got Moses and Elijah who are, you know, dead people, <laughs> to put it mildly. I mean, okay, Elijah didn't die. He went up to heaven, but he's a glorified person. Moses is a glorified person. They're immortal beings and they are with Peter, James, and John, who are mortal beings in the same place. Where else, where's the only place you see mortals and immortals living together? In the millennial kingdom is the answer. In the millennial kingdom, because we are, we are after you die, you are raised to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20. And the, the, during that thousand years, there will be immortals that have raised to reign with Christ, but there are also mortals there. And you can ask about that in the Q&A to make sure you understand all that. But this is a glimpse of the kingdom. Jesus is shining in his radiant glory. Moses and Elijah have this glory from heaven. This is, Jesus' face is transfigured. It's, it alters its form because Jesus did not look like a, uh, you know, 33-year-old Middle Eastern man for eternity past and eternity future, but only when he was on earth. You know, when he was a three-year-old, he looked like a three-year-old. He didn't look like he does in heaven. So the transfiguration is his body and face and even clothing conforming to the way it is when it's in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what you see here. You see mortals and immortals and this, the glorified Savior living together. It was just a moment. It was just a glimpse you know, Peter wants it to last forever. No, 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 no. We're not building tents. This is just a glimpse. But that's the taste of the kingdom of, of glory that some who were standing there that day saw just a week later. Does that make sense? So, uh, the other verse, by the way, is Matthew sixteen twenty-eight: The Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then it's the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 1. Um, okay, you can go back to Luke. Okay, so the first thing you need to know about the second coming of Christ is that it's unfulfilled. It has not happened yet. Jesus has not come back. Secondly, um, it is unpredictable. Now, I admit if I were in the crowd that morning and I heard Jesus say, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, I would think that the kingdom of God is coming in my generation's lifetime. That is what the plain reading sounds like at first. But this proves a point about prophecy. Prophecy predicts what will happen. It does not predict when it will happen. It's 
very rare that a prophecy comes with a timing involved. The one exception would be the captivity of Israel is said to be 70 years, and it was 70 years. Um, you know, the, the, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was told, you will be mute until these events happen, and then you won't be mute anymore. So sometimes it's a little bit more specific. But in general, the prophecies are just, this is going to happen, and you have no idea when it's going to happen. They're just unpredictable, the when of it is. Now, there are aspects of the kingdom of God that are already functioning in the church. So when the kingdom of God came in power and glory, it's, it inaugurated something. It started something. There's kind of what we call the already not yet. There's already aspects of the kingdom work happening in the church, and we will look at those next week when we look at the Mount Transfiguration. But there's lots that have not yet been fulfilled. And Jesus was clear that you can't ever predict the time exactly. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is just before Jesus is about to ascend. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That's just a characteristic of pro prophecies, that it's, it's predicting something, but it's unpredictable in the timing. Now, it's not only a secret from Harold Camping um, and people who want to set dates. It's a secret from everybody. Mark 13, 32, listen to this. Jesus, talking about the day that he will return, says, Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Nor the Son. But only the Father. And what's really cool about that verse is it's one of the places where you see the... Um, the kenosis happening, the, the voluntary emptying of himself. When, when Jesus, who is God, has voluntary limit, voluntarily limited the independent use of his divine attributes. In other words, there's stuff that Jesus didn't know while he was on earth. He could have known, he could have tapped into that, but he didn't for everything. He didn't always walk around all the time knowing everything. He could. We see him reading people's minds at times, but just like he could walk on water at times and he could you know, heal people at times, but he would use those attributes for the glory of God at the time. But here's one of the things that he didn't even know. So think about that. Jesus is on earth. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be raised again. He's going to go to heaven. He knows he's going to return, but he just doesn't know when. To me, that's interesting. But... Well, at least that should make us humble enough to know that if Jesus didn't even know when he's coming back, there's no way you do, okay? There's no way Harold Camping does. And there's no way anybody on the internet does. There's no way. If anyone ever says, I figured it out, I figured out the exact date, you can say, you're a wacko. Because you haven't. You really, really haven't. The angels don't even know, but you know? Now, I'm sure Jesus knows now that he's in heaven, sure, but he has not revealed that to us. So that person is a false prophet if they claim to know those things. So how will I know for sure when it's happening? This brings us to our third point. Firstly, the second coming is unfulfilled. It hasn't happened yet. It's unpredictable. We're not sure when it's going to happen. But thirdly, and this should be a great comfort, it's unmistakable. You will not miss it when it happens. Because look at verse 36. After all this that happens here with the transfiguration, verse 36 says, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You know, Jesus was, uh, quite frequently would tell, you know, 
pull some of the apostles aside, show them something, and say, don't tell the others yet. I want this on record eventually, but not, not yet. So the three apostles knew the kingdom, this little kingdom sightseeing experience has just been fulfilled, but they don't tell anyone. So you can imagine that until this gospel comes out and the prophecies and the, the, uh, of Revelation come out and, and the prophecies that are found in, you know, predictions and that that are found in Paul's writings come out, there's this span of time where there were people who heard Jesus say, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of heaven. And they're letting their imaginations run wild, thinking, well, yeah, I'm not going to die until Jesus returns. And so you start seeing that error start fleshing out during the New Testament times. I'll give you two examples. One is um, 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. Paul tells Timothy, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. So, even, so Jesus dies, Paul, his ministry starts shortly after that, you know, a couple of decades after that. His protege, Timothy, is a pastor of a church. So this is like within a generation of Jesus saying these things. And there's people in churches teaching that the resurrections already happened. They're preterists, is what they are. They're, it's already happened, it's... So, and you kind of think, isn't the solution to that, like, if somebody says to you, the resurrection has already happened, wouldn't you just say to them, nuh-uh? <laughs> like, no, it hasn't. I mean, look around. It hasn't happened. So how do people think the resurrection's happened when it hasn't happened? I mean, think of what the resurrection is. Graves open up corpses pop out in their fully renewed glorified bodies Jesus comes down he establishes the kingdom he destroys his enemies he rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked and this has happened what while I was watching a football game like when did I miss this I know I you know I, I actually missed July 4th because I left Israel on July 3rd, and I got home on July 5th. So Independence Day did not happen for me. Was it like that? I was flying somewhere, I was crossing time zones, and I just missed the resurrection? No. The only way that people could be teaching the resurrection happened is if they spiritualize it. They change the meaning. Well, the resur- you know, Harold Camping said the resurrection happened on May 21st, 2011. Well, how do you explain that, Mr. Camping? Well, it happened spiritually. So there was a judgment on the world spiritually, and there was a, a change of hearts and a resurrection. And I, well, I mean, I don't, I don't quite understand what people think, but that's what they're saying. Another example, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. So the first one was 2 Timothy 2, 16. This is 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, rapture, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 
So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, I'm going to tell you some stuff about Jesus' coming. And why? Because I don't want you to be upset by this message that's out there, or maybe you even got a letter that someone signed that came from Paul, saying that the day of the Lord has come, that the day of the, you know, his judgment and his, the rapture and his return and all that. So, so to Timothy, he's telling him, there's some saying the resurrection's happened. To the Thessalonians, he's saying, there's some people telling you that the day of the Lord's already have, happened. So if this was happening in the first century church, of course it's still happening today. Of course there's still going to be people on the internet saying it's happened already, it's happened already. The preterists and all of them writing books and all this. So let me show you how unmistakable it's going to be. In Acts chapter 1 verse 9. When Jesus said these things, when he said, you know, it's not for you to know the seasons and the times that the Father has fixed. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you to heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. That's what the angels told the disciples. Jesus is going to come back. There will be a second coming. When he comes back, it will not be a spiritual coming. His coming back will be the same way his leaving was. How was it? Well, at the very least, physical, literal. If you want to get into details, on a cloud, he went up, he's going to come down. Zechariah 14.4 tells us this in the prophecy. Zechariah 14, verse 4, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. I mean, that is as literal language as you can get. There's compass points to this language. It's literal. It's not going to be Jesus going to come back in our hearts. And there's going to be an earthquake of recognition in your heart. No, he's going to land on a specific GPS coordinate. I was just there a couple of weeks ago, and it was very cool to stand there on the Mount of Olives and think, okay, let's think. Where's the, where's the, the valley going to be formed? This is going to move this way. That's going to move that way. There's going to be, there's, he's going to land right here. There's going to be an earthquake, and there's going to be this physical thing that happens. It's It's literal. When Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, it will be an earth-shattering physical event, and you're not going to miss it. Now, for the, the passage that explains how visible this is, is the one that Will Brandon unpacked for us in his sermons on Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives when he spoke about these things. Let me read it for you. Matthew 24, 25. See, I've told you beforehand, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Do you see the image? You know, if, you're, if you've ever been at uh, like the swim club, you know, the lifeguards have to blow the whistle and get everyone out of the water if there's lightning. So you're sitting there, everything's fine. And the next thing, there's this sheet of light that just goes from the east to the west. And everyone who still wants to swim hopes that the lifeguards didn't see it. So they're all like, what? What lightning? You know? 
but then the thunder comes and the, and the whistle blows and everyone has to get out. There's no ways, if you can see it, that means that the lifeguard can see it. There's no ways you're going to miss it. That's what the coming of, of the Son of Man is going to be like. It's going to be like from the east to the west, like the lightning. It's just the, the light show is going to be, it's not like a secret thing that only a few people know. I mean, imagine that. Imagine there was like a special breed of people in Mobile who could tell when there was lightning. And the rest of us couldn't see it, and we just had to believe them. Oh, there's lightning. Wow. Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not how lightning works. It's visible to everybody at the same time. That's the point that Jesus says. As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then he uses another metaphor. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. <laughs> What's that got to do with lightning? Nothing. But <laughs> it's the visibility and the unmistakability. This is something we were always very familiar with um, growing up in Africa, and you go to the Kruger National Park, and whenever you go to the Kruger National Park, there's millions of animals, but the ones you want to see are the lions. You want to see the leopards, the lions, you want to see the cheetah, you want to see the cats. And so they're hard to find because they're camouflage, you know, and it's a big place. And so you're driving around, driving around, but every once in a while, you'll see in the distance, there's this column of vultures. And so when there's a huge flock of vultures and they're all circling in one spot, what does that mean? There's a dead animal. And if there's a dead animal, there's likely someone who killed it or something that killed it. And that means maybe there's lions there. So everybody goes and drives to the vultures. And sure enough, that's how you usually find them. It's like there's been a lion kill and there's a bunch of cars and there's vultures and you can see them. Um, or maybe just, you know, some poor elephant died and the vultures are picking it to pieces. But wherever the vultures are, that's where the corpse is. That's what Jesus is saying. You will, know, you will know what it's like just the way you know where the corpse is lying because you can see the vultures. Everybody can see the vultures from wherever they are looking for the corpse. That's what it's going to be like. So he's just using two metaphors. And his whole point is this. Don't believe people who say they know something secret about the Messiah. It's going to be visible to everybody at the same time. You're not going to miss it. That's his point. Matthew 24, 26, and 7. Sorry, 27 and 28. He goes on, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the power of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming. All the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, just like the angel said coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Does this sound like something you could sleep through? Does this sound like something you could miss? Like everyone on your block is looking up there and you're, you're walking this way and you're like, what? What's everybody looking at? Never mind. That's not how it's going to be. You're not going to miss this. You're not going to be the only one who didn't get the memo. This is going to be a worldwide event that is visible to everybody. God will shut off every light in the universe. The sun, the moon, the stars, except for the dazzling brightness of the glory of the returning Son of Man. Now, how do full predators deal with this? Well... Even in the Matthew passage in verse 34, there's this verse that says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And they say, Aha! So Jesus 
gives the whole Olivet Discourse with all of this imagery, and then at the end he says, this generation will not pass away before these things take place. You see this generation sitting there. This all happened in their lifetime, 70 AD. The vultures, the lightning, the glory, the angels, it's all spiritual. It all already happened in 70 AD. Or maybe the this generation is not referring to the people sitting there, but the this generation will not pass away until all these things happen is the generation who starts seeing the signs is the same generation that will see the end of the signs. I mean, that's what, he, that's what Jesus is saying. This generation, the one that sees the beginning of the tribulation is the same generation that sees the end of the tribulation. It's only seven years. It's not like there's going to be a sign of Christ coming once every hundred years for 3,000 years. That's not the coming of Christ. Once it starts, it happens in the same generation. The same people who see it start happening are the same people that see it end. That's all he's saying there. So preterists are just very wrong. There's no nice way to say that. So God gives us prophecy about the future so that we can comfort each other, so that we can rest in the security of the certainty of his victory over Satan. He gives us prophecy so we can, he can stimulate in us an eternal mindset and the urgency for the evangelism of the lost and so that we want to live holy lives. So if you get too upset about eschatology or too focused on eschatology or too distracted by eschatology, then you've kind of missed the point of the eschatology. Eschatology is supposed to bring you comfort and peace. It's supposed to give you an urgency in your evangelism. And it's supposed to give you a desire for holiness. Now, to sum up, you have not missed the end of the world. Nor is it possible for anybody to miss the end of the world. But it is coming. We don't know when. So get busy evangelizing and live holy lives. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're so thankful for the reminder that you have written the end from the beginning, that we are assured that Jesus Christ is coming back in glory and that we will not miss that. I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to be urgent in our evangelism of the lost, that they too can be prepared for the coming of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, I said there'd be Q&A, so Q&A it is. What's up? Yes, Chris. That's an excellent question. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So let me just summarize for those watching the video or didn't hear. Um, so when we talk about prophecies being fulfilled literally, how do we reconcile that with certain prophecies that we read in Scripture that we're very comfortable taking in a symbolic or metaphorical way? And a couple of examples were given. One is 
um, Ezekiel's prophecy that I will take out your heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. And another example is, uh, you know, if you go and read the prophecies of Daniel, like say, for example, of the statue where it's like, you know, the bronze feet represent this kingdom and the gold represents that. And there's also prophecies where different animals represent different things. And we're comfortable doing that. So are we being inconsistent? So that's a really, really good question. And, um, and this, is, this is something, so my roommate on the trip before held a different interpretive scheme than I did. And so he would constantly joke about stuff saying like, oh, so literally, and he would, he would constantly say like, oh, we hit the road today. Um, and our hands must have been really sore because we did it, literally, you know? And I was like, no. So he was just reminding me that when I mentioned literally in prophecies, I need to define the word literal. Okay, so, so part of the solution is when we... Th there's a difference between having a literal interpretation and a literal fulfillment. So let me just talk about the word literal. Literal just means the natural meaning of the language being used. That's a broad definition. And that's how, that's how futurists use the word literal. When we say the prophecy is going to be um, fulfilled literally, we mean according to the natural way the language is used. That's different from saying um, a literal interpretation of the language. So we, as an English teacher, I would try to teach my students this, the difference between connotative language and denotative language. What does the language connote, what does it denote? Denote is what does it actually say. So we would, we would draw a picture of a, you know, let's say time flies when you're having fun. So that denotes a clock with wings going, you know, hit the, hit the road, somebody hitting the road with a hammer or with their hand, okay, that's what it denotes. But what is the normal meaning of the language if I say hit the road? Everybody knows that the literal fulfillment of that is for you to leave. Okay, it's not a spiritual thing. Hit the road doesn't mean reconcile with your wife. Like, so the, the natural meaning of the language is clear in the language. That's what we mean by literal fulfillment. So the reason we know that Ezekiel is not talking about an actual heart of stone is because there is no such thing as a heart of stone, literally. Nobody has a stone, a petrified heart. When we say you have a heart of stone, the natural meaning of the language means that you're hard-hearted, that you're spiritually unaware, etc. And so when I say I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, the natural meaning of the language is that God will do a miraculous work in you that changes your hard-heartedness into soft-heartedness for him. The, po the point is simply, we, everybody reads the text and know what it says. Literalists just say that what it says is what's going to happen. Does that make a bit more sense? So let's say you go to Daniel and the prophecy of the statue, and I forget the order of all of them. I always remember these clay feet, like bronze legs, and an iron torso. That's kind of, and each of those represents a different kingdom. So that's difficult to interpret, granted. But the point is that there's a picture that's representing a reality. And that reality happened literally in history, that these kingdoms came in the order that the prophecy said that they would. Um, so is that starting to make a bit more sense? You can still use symbolic language. You can still use metaphors. Um, in, in the apocalyptic literature, it's full of metaphors and symbolic language. But you always want to ask yourself, what is the metaphor for? The point of a metaphor is to make something more clear. So 
what is the metaphor for? So it might not be a literal interpretation, but it may be a, a literal fulfillment. I'll give you a good example. In Micah chapter 4, where it talks about world peace. In the poem about world peace, Micah predicts that the nations will beat their plows, sorry, will beat their swords into plowshares. You know the one I'm talking about? The nations will beat their swords into plowshares, and each man will sit under his own fig tree. That's the prophecy. So, what a, a literal interpretation and a literal fulfillment of that would look like is that there's no guns in the world and we've gone back to fighting with swords in the future and people take those swords and beat them into plowshares and now we go to be farmers. But I don't think that that prophecy requires that level of literal interpretation, right? It can still be a literal fulfillment and say that there's a metaphor there. The metaphor is that weapons of war, like swords, will be transformed into um, instruments of agriculture. Things that are destructive will become productive. Whether it's guns that are melted and turned into tractors, you know, uh, tanks are turned into tractors, guns are melted and then used to make backhoes or whatever, shovels or whatever it is people use. The point there is there will be no need for destructive technology anymore. There will only be need for productive technology. And when it says each man will sit under his fig tree, well, again, that's a metaphor for having your own land, being in the shade, having something producing fruit. Um, it's, in fact, sitting under your own fig tree is a, is a constant metaphor in the Old Testament just to describe shalom and peace. And each person will have, you know, they won't be at war. They'll, they'll be at home and they'll have their own little fig tree. Well, that doesn't mean every single human being on planet Earth will have their own fig tree. You, but the point is you'll have whatever peace is for you. So I hope what I'm saying doesn't sound like I'm undoing what I said before. You can have non-literal language, but whatever the language means, it must mean something, and we believe that's actually going to happen. Okay? Does that make sense? Is there a follow-up on that one before we move to another question? Okay. Charlie. Yes. At the time, they shared it with no one at the time. Oh, yeah. So at the time, they would they told no one of these things um, because it says there they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, Luke obviously is writing this, so he knows it. So they must have told Luke. Um, or I'm sure by the time Luke's writing, this was a, a story that had been circulating. But in those days, in, in other words, when before Jesus died, there was a lot of information given to the apostles that only the apostles knew. That Jesus didn't want revealed until after his resurrection. And we even see that about his... Um, we see that about his, the, the prophecy of his resurrection... He even tells them, don't tell anybody yet. And then afterwards, he comes to them and says, now I'm sending you to all the nations, and now you go tell everybody everything that I've taught you. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Garner. Let's start with one.
Yeah, so the question is why, why he chose to say some of you will not taste death until you see these. If it's only eight days later, he could have chosen something else that people don't do for eight days. Some of you will not take a boat ride across Galilee until you see the, the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus is being deliberately um, mysterious and vague about the timing. So by saying that some, some here will not taste death immediately implies this, is a, this could happen in our generation. And that's what the preterists latch onto. That is clearly what Jesus is saying. And so they're saying, so therefore it must have happened in their generation. But they're not allowing for the fact that what happens still qualifies um, in a literal way. Like they actually saw the kingdom of, some of those people actually saw this. So that, and that's why I said, I think there were people in that crowd and in the various crowds Jesus said this to who did think that this was going to happen in their lifetime, which is why you have people like Hymenaeus and Philetus able to say the resurrection's already happened in that. So I do think that there's sometimes a deliberate vagueness and mysteriousness to Christ's predictions. And he tells us about that in uh, Matthew 13, verse 13, where he, he says to the apostles that the reason I teach in parables is because it has been revealed to you the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but it has not been revealed to them. So I'm going to say it in such a way that it could be misconstrued so that the people that I don't want them to know the answer misconstrue it. Which is a, which is a whole own theological question. Like, really? Like, there's, Jesus wanted people to misinterpret what he said? Yes. He wanted some people to not know the kingdom's the, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So I think this might be one of those cases. He says it in this mysterious way. Well, these three guys know it's already been fulfilled, but no one else really knows that. Great question. Uh, you have a second question. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm going to have to restate this for them. So what's the question part of that? Because I, I think I see where you're going. Right. Okay, so let me restate this and then tell me if I, if I haven't answered your question. But um, what Garner's talking about is that there's two kind of approaches to understanding the kingdom and um, one is the idea that the kingdom starts small during the first century period like the like the mustard seed parable and then grows and grows and grows over time throughout the ages and still growing now and the other mindset is that there's no kingdom of God until Jesus comes back and establishes it and I think that 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 latter view that has been held by some classical dispensationalists over time is not the right view um, understanding of dispensationalism has um, evolved to what's called progressive dispensationalism, which understands that the, the plans of God progress one to the other. And the short answer is the already not yet. When Jesus was on earth, he, he started something 
that he has not yet finished um, as far as the kingdom of God. Now, he's finished all the work that's required to do it by dying on the cross, but he started, he, what's called, inaugurated the kingdom. And he inaugurated the kingdom by doing certain things and starting that ball rolling. And when he talks about the kingdom of God, he says it's like a mustard seed, which is like the smallest of seeds that grows into the biggest of bushes that even the birds of the air will come and make nests. And he's saying that's what this is like. You 12, this little, this little kingdom of God, just us here in this little upper room, this is going to grow. And it's going to grow into the 120 in the upper room. Then it's going to grow to the 3,000 in Pentecost. And then the 5,000 after that in Acts. And it's going to keep growing until there's millions and millions of Christians. And not only the Jews who accept the Messiah, but even the Gentiles, the birds from all over, are going to be able to come put their nests in this giant kingdom that's going to grow. And so it's a, it's a, did Jesus bring the kingdom? Yes. Is the kingdom here? No. So, so how do you reconcile those? already not yet there's aspects of the kingdom that's already here and you see those in the church poverty is being eliminated within the church um you know there's there were healings in that happening at the time in the full kingdom there's going to be no disease so in the time of jesus there were healings happening and the apostles were doing healings um there's peace among people there's nations and uh racism and the the barriers of race are broken down and ethnicities and all these things are, are glimpses of the kingdom adoption is a kingdom of uh, uh manifestation on earth um looking after the poor is a kingdom manifestation all these things so the kingdom is manifest in churches worldwide in a microcosm when jesus comes back the whole world will be like one good church that never does anything wrong where there's no poverty and there's no disease and there's no corruption and there's no crime and there's no racism and there's no tension or anything. And the people who are unbelievers in that kingdom who rise their head, he crushes. But that's not, that's not there at the moment. That's why we keep praying, may your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven, starting with me and my church obeying you. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Great. Another view, by the way, which is the wrong view, is the post-millennial crusader's view, where when Constantine became a Christian, he said, well, let's make the world Christian then. And so everyone has to become a Christian. Oh, you don't want to become a Christian because you're Muslim? I know, we'll kill you if you don't become a Christian. Then there'll only be Christians left. So that's, that's, not what, <laughs> that's not a way to bring in the kingdom. The way you bring in the kingdom is through the gospel. You can't make people citizens of heaven you um by force they have to convert to become citizens of heaven good okay any one last question yes dave oh no not heaven okay so uh dave um, early, Dave's referring to earlier in the sermon, I, I mentioned that mortals and immortals were together on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, uh, Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah, and that was a glimpse of what the kingdom's going to be like, not in heaven, but in the millennial kingdom which happens on earth. So the timeline is when Jesus comes back, he establishes a kingdom which the Bible calls a thousand years and there's no reason not to take that as a literal thousand years, but at least a very long time on earth, reigning from Jerusalem. And all the Psalms that talk about the nations coming 
to Jerusalem to be judged by the Messiah and all that and all the Gentiles turning to them and all the families of the earth being blessed. All those prophecies get fulfilled during that kingdom period. Um, okay, not heaven. Right, you're right. You can't have mortals in, in heaven. That's in the millennial kingdom. Now, after the millennial kingdom, we usher in what's called the eternal state, which is kind of what people think of when they say the word heaven, and there will only be glorified people during that time. All the mortals will have died and be glorified by then, yeah. Um, heaven's just a tricky word because heaven is kind of the word we use for wherever God is, wherever he's dwelling, and at the moment that's in a place called paradise. Eventually that'll be on earth, in the new Jerusalem, the new earth, uh, the, the, the new heavens and the new earth, so, which are the same thing. So I just, uh, I mean, I use the word heaven the same way you do, just like generally where people go when they die. Technically speaking, people don't go to heaven when they die. They go to paradise or Sheol. 